Well, hey, church, hopefully you're having a great weekend. Uh, when I was in my early 20s, I uh, got hired for a job, and one of, my, one of the uh, responsibilities for, the, for me in this job was I was to supervise and manage a small department or a small team of people. And one of the first things that I needed to do was I needed to hire somebody uh, to add to the team. And so this was the first time I had ever done this. I'm like 22, 23 years old, and uh, I hired a guy who I, I knew him a little bit. I knew his, his family. They were good people. Uh, he was a good guy, and uh, I hired him for this job. But as the weeks went by and as, let's say, let's say the first month goes by, I realized um, he just wasn't doing the, as good of a job as I had expected him to do. And for me, I'm like reasoning it in my head. I'm like, well, you know, he's, he's only been here for a few weeks. Like he doesn't know. He'll figure it out. It'll get better. And what I didn't realize was that uh, that was actually the best month of his work all right, I was going to get. And it was just going to go downhill after that. Have you ever hired somebody who just... You, you thought it was going to be so, I mean, you had like these expectations of it. Hey, man, this is going to be so great. He's going to do such a good job or she. And you're just, and then it just like bums you out because it just doesn't work out. Okay. Maybe some of you guys are that person. And so you're bummed out because it didn't work out. I don't know. Um, but what I realized or what I started to do is, you know, I'd point out little things. But for me, it was just a lot easier to just not address it at all. You know what I mean? I'm like, wow, it's just awkward, and, and I'm a young guy. I don't really know what I'm doing here. And what I've noticed was it didn't take long that everybody else on the team started to notice this individual's, let's say, lack of work ethic, and that it was getting worse and worse and worse. And they started, the, the team started to resent him because they were the ones that had to pick up his slack. And not only did the team started to resent them or him, but the team also started to resent me for not addressing it with him. And, uh, and, and maybe you've run into that at some point in your life. But what I realized in that season of my life is that passivity leads to problems. And ultimately, passivity leads to chaos in all different areas of our life, in our homes, and in the workplace, and in our professional life, and, and, and on the team, in the classroom, wherever it might be for you. Now, uh, for the last seven weeks here at Grace, we have been going through the life, we've been looking at the life of a king named David. And today, uh, we are at a point in the story that most teachers like to just skip over. Because right, if you're like me, we like the happy parts. I mean, we love the happy parts of David's life. You, you know, we think of David's life, and for a lot of us as Christians, because we're familiar with David, we think to ourselves, we're like, oh yeah, David, King David, he's a man after God's own heart. He's anointed as king. He kills Goliath. He escapes King Saul, and then he's crowned king, and he's a really, really good king. And yeah, we all know about the hiccup with Bathsheba that we talked about last week, but that's, you know, I mean, but, but out of that came Solomon, right, who Bathsheba was his mom, and Solomon was the next great king, so it all just kind of ended happily ever, <coughs> whoa, all right, I choked on my own spit, shouldn't have told you that, all right, after all, now I can't put, the, okay, yeah, you can't put this online now, uh, first service always gets the worst service, so I'm just saying, if you want a better preaching, you come to second or third, all right, just throwing this out there, feel bad for all of you guys, but uh, where was I, oh yeah, Solomon, and, uh, and David's life, and we look at David's life, and we think to ourselves, happily ever after, but as you know, that's not reality, all right? If you've lived more than two days, all right, you know that life just doesn't go that way. And David's life, 
all right, was not happily ever after either. And so today we're going to find out that, that David, I mean, he's just got all these areas in his life that he's just not good at, all right? The work ethic in those areas is just not good, all right? He's a bad dad. He's maybe even a worse husband, and his family is just in complete chaos. And because his family is in complete chaos, the whole nation or the whole empire of Israel is in complete chaos. And all of these things are natural consequences of his affair with a married woman named Bathsheba, who we talked about last week, all right? Uh, you remember how that all went down? Okay, a few of you are like... Others of you were sleeping uh, last week. Uh, this is how it goes. All right, remember David, he sees uh, the wife of one of his most trusted men. All right, he decides that he wants her. Then he goes and sleeps with her. She ends up pregnant, and then he tries to cover it up over and over and over again and just doesn't work each time. And then he ultimately just has him murdered so that he can marry Bathsheba and cover it up that way. And last week, if you remember, the last verse in chapter 11 Right? Uh, it says, however, the Lord considered what David had done to be evil. So David tries to cover it up so nobody knows what he's done, but God sees it. And he sees exactly what David does. So remember what God does, right? God sends uh, this guy named Nathan. He was a prophet. He had actually was one of David's good friends. And uh, Nathan just co confronts David, which had to have been hard on his part because he's confronting the king, right, who has just murdered his other friend, all right, so awkward. And uh, he basically just says, hey, look at what you've done, all right? You've, you've, you've had an affair with another man's wife. Then you had that man murdered and just all this stuff. And God sees this. And David, once he realizes everything that he's done to try to cover up his sin, right? He acknowledges his sin, and he knows that what he's done is completely wrong. And basically what Nathan tells him is he says, hey man, God forgives you, but there are going to be some natural consequences from your sin, right? Like we just don't get away from that. And I'm not, there's a difference to me between consequences and punishment, right? God forgives you, he's saying, but because of what you've done, it's, it, because of sin, there's just going to be natural things, natural negatives that happen because of your sin. And what he says is, you don't understand this now, and maybe Nathan didn't even understand exactly how this was going to happen. But he says, this is going to affect your family for years to come. Right? This is going to be a problem for you. This is going to negatively affect your family. And a year goes by. Nothing. Three years go by, nothing. Five years go by, nothing. Ten years later, David's world is going to be turned once again upside down. And this time, David's going to be in his 60s. Right? And the sin of his past is that ultimately going to catch up with him. Now, today what I want to do is we're going to look at David's tragedy um, in his life. And my goal and my plan is hopefully, maybe, 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 this will save us from repeating what David did and save us from the same tragedy in our life. All right? So uh, 2 Samuel chapter 13, we're going to wrap up the series here today. It says some time passed, okay, probably um, a period, maybe around 10 years or so passed. And this is after the issue with Bathsheba. It says uh, David's son Absalom had a beautiful sister named Tamar, and David's son Amnon was infatuated with her. Now, there's some things you got to understand about David's kids. All right, we have this. Uh, David had a bunch of a bunch of kids, but uh, these are his his oldest sons. You 
You got Amnon, who's the oldest son. Amnon is, is next in line to become king of Israel. He's next in line to the throne. Daniel, we don't really hear much about Daniel, and so most scholars believe that Daniel probably died at some point in his childhood. And then you got Absalom, who we're going to talk about right here. And then Adonijah, who's the fourth oldest son. Uh, he's going to come up later um, at the end of today. And so here we got David's oldest son, Amnon, who's in line to become the next king. He is consumed uh, for, by lust for his half-sister, Tamar. Now, Tamar is Absalom's full sister, okay? So Absalom and, and Amnon, they have the same dad's David, different moms. And so Amnon and Tamar have the same dad's David, but different moms. And so one day, Amnon, he comes up with this idea, this plan. Uh, he pretends to be sick. You ever done that? <laughs> yeah. All right, if you've gone to school, you pretend to be sick, okay? That's what happens. Um, all of us have done that at some point in our life, especially when we were kids. You got that big test the next day. You got that big thing that you don't want to deal with. You just lay in bed, and you're like, oh, mom, I can't go. You know how that is, okay? Yeah, that's what, um, we've all done that. So that's what, that's what Amnon does. He fakes being sick, and David hears about it, and so he goes in, as a good dad should, and he goes to Amnon's house to see him. And uh, when Amnon's there, he's like, oh, man, Dad, I'm so sick. Like, oh, I'm dying here. Hey, by the way, could you have Tamar, all right, my sister, my half-sister, could you have her make some of that, like, really good chicken noodle soup, you know, with the saltine crackers and the ginger ale, you know, like that type of stuff? He's like, could you bring, have her bring some of that over? Man, that would be really good. That would probably heal me right up. And so David, he doesn't know anything. He doesn't think twice about this. He's like, yeah, sure, I'll ask her if she could come and bring, um, bring some food for you. And so David goes to Tamar, his daughter, and he says, hey, would you make some food for your older brother Amnon? And Tamar says, yeah, dad, no problem. She brings Amnon the food, and when she gets there, all right, Amnon, he sends everybody else out of the house, and then he tries to convince her to sleep with him. And so as you can imagine, Tamar refuses this. She's like, no, 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 we cannot do this. All right, this is not good. All right, this has never been done in Israel ever before. And instead, he forces her, and one of the saddest things in the entire Bible, he rapes her. And it's his brother, her brother, half-brother. And so after he does this, the Bible tells us he hated her, all right, because she didn't go along with it. And he, had, he did what he, he did. He hated her. And what it says is that uh, Amnon, he hated Tamar with such intensity that the hatred that he hated her with was greater than the love that he had loved her with. And he yells at her. He says, get out of here, he said. And Tamar doesn't know what to do. She doesn't leave right away. She, she, she kind of stands there. She's like, I can't, I, I don't know. Like, she's still trying to wrap her mind around what has just happened. And so Amnon called to a servant who waited on him. He says, get this away from me. And he's talking about his sister. He doesn't even call her by name. He just says, get this out of here. Throw her out and bolt the door behind her. And she doesn't know what to do. And in this culture... I mean, her life is ruined forever. See, in this culture, in, her, in their culture back then, all right, ancient culture, that, that after this happens, right, she will never marry, right? She will never have kids. And the word starts getting out about what has happened within the family of David. In fact, David finds out. It says, when King David heard about all these things, he was furious. He is so mad, and rightly so. He is so mad that his son, this is the son that's supposed to be the next king, that he would, all right, that he would rape his sister, and he is so, so, so mad about it. And you know what David did? 
nothing. He doesn't do anything. I mean, think about it. After what David's done, who is David to tell anybody how to manage their private lives? Right? David, by the way, is not responsible for Amnon's choices, but he does set the stage for Amnon's choices because Amnon is around right, when David goes through this whole ordeal with Bathsheba, when David has an affair on his own wives, when he has an affair with his own friend's wife. I mean, Amnon sees all this, he knows all this, and this sets the stage for his own choices. See, David's sin negatively influences the lives of his kids. And that's something that we as parents always need to remember. And David, again, rightly so, is mad, but he doesn't address the situation. What's interesting is that Absalom, all right, Tamar's full brother, he does not address the situation either. It says Absalom, he didn't say anything to Amnon, either good or bad, because he hated Amnon since he disgraced his sister Tamar. And so Absalom allows Tamar to come and live, um, to move in with him and take care, and he takes care of her, all right, because he knows that she'll never be able to marry again. That's back within this culture, and he acts as if Amnon doesn't even exist. Now, uh, this happens, and two years go by, and David has not addressed it. David has not done anything about it. He has not dealt justice on this, and Absalom, and, and he has not forgotten. Absalom cannot forget what Amnon has done to his sister, and so one day, Absalom, he throws this big old party, invites all of his brothers, or all of the king's sons, all of the princes to attend his party. And he gets everybody good and drunk. And when Amnon is all good and drunk, he sends some men into the hall where they're all eating at, and they murder Amnon right where he sits in front of all of the other brothers. And as you can imagine, this kind of ruins the mood of the party. And so everybody leaves. All the brothers, they're freaking out. They're like, oh man, he's going to kill us all. What if we are next? And so they all run away. They run back to Jerusalem to, their, to King David. All right, And, and, uh, and Absalom he decides to run the opposite way because he doesn't know what King David will do after he has just murdered one of his sons. And Absalom takes off and he leaves the country. And David, when he hears this, I mean, he is confronted with the facts of what exactly has happened. And he mourns for his son Amnon, who is murdered by his own brother. And everybody at this point is looking to the king. What is he going to do? Right? How will he bring justice? And the king does nothing. After all, who is David to call out anybody for murder? After all, who is David to punish anybody for killing somebody else? See, not only does David's kid, not only do David's kids repeat David's sin, but also intensifies, all right? And I think this is something that we see within our own culture. I mean, just think about David's life here for just a second, all right? David has an affair with Bathsheba. Was it wrong? 100%. And then Amnon, his own son, who, who watches that happen or sees the situation happens, all right, he has an affair with his own sister, Tamar. It's worse. Right, David, at least, he takes Bathsheba in after she becomes pregnant, and at least he marries her. Amnon, he has his sister thrown out. All right, David, he murders a friend. Absalom, he murders a brother. You see how it intensifies in the next generation? Right, you see how it gets worse and worse and worse? See, sin is not content to stay the same. It grows, and it grows, and it grows, and it grows, and it's hungry for us. I mean, I mean a lot of, uh, think about just society in general, right? Like, we see this in our society, like, it just gets worse and worse and worse and worse. Things, like, 20 years ago that was so, like, man, that's, like, messed up. Now, today, are just the norm. Like, you, a lot of you guys are older than me. Like, you know this, right? Like, you've seen this within your life. Um, even just look at, like, like, the music that's out today. All right, or, or the TV shows. There ain't no Andy Griffith no more, people. You know, get what I'm saying? 
right? Or, or the movies. Like, it just gets worse and worse and worse, in a sense, morally. See, the sin of David, as a dad, it negatively influences his kids. And sin has a way of repeating itself in our kids' lives. But usually, it intensifies, right? Usually, it's worse. It's worse. And David's family is crumbling down all around him. And David chooses to be passive. He chooses not to do anything. He, maybe he just, just doesn't know what to do. I wouldn't know what to do in his situation, but that still doesn't give him the excuse. He doesn't handle the situation, right? You got Amnon, who's raping his sister. David does nothing. You got Absalom, who murders his brother Amnon. All right, it, it, David does nothing. I mean, his whole life, his whole family is just a mess. And where is David? He's not engaged. He's sitting on the sidelines, See, passivity will always lead to chaos. That's what passivity does. If we're not standing up for what's right, if we're not doing the right thing, we just let things go by. And this is within all areas of our life, right? It leads to chaos. It's never, never, never a good thing. And so three years pass by, and David begins missing his son, Absalom. And so David arranges for Absalom to come back home, and he allows Absalom to come back to Jerusalem, but he refuses to see him. He doesn't want to see him. It's like, it's like David has this grudge, and again, I, I guess I understand. He murdered his, you know, his son. His brother murdered brother. And so David, he doesn't know what to do. Maybe he doesn't know what to say, and maybe he still holds some of that grudge against his son for what he did, which was so wrong. And so he refuses to see him. And for two years, as Absalom is, is living in Jerusalem, right, he tries again and again and again. He tries and tries and tries to see his dad, King David, but David just won't have it. He refuses to see Absalom. And then finally, after those two years of, of living there, right, Absalom can't take it anymore. And so what he does, he comes up with a plan. He sends a bunch of men to Joab's house. Now, you remember Joab? We talked about Joab last week. Yeah, yeah Joab, he was one of those guys. Uh, he was actually David's general, his, like, top commander of his army. And uh, we talked about him a lot last week. And so uh, Absalom, he knows that Joab's kind of the go-between between David and anybody else. And so uh, he goes and he has his men go to Joab's house, to his farm, and he has them burn all his crops. As you can imagine, Joab's not really happy about that, but it does get his attention, which is exactly what Absalom was trying to do. So Joab goes to Absalom's house, and he's just like, hey, man, what the heck? You just burnt all my stuff? Like, like that's not cool. And Absalom's like, hey, man, don't be mad at me. I've been trying to get a hold of you. I've been trying to get a hold of my dad. Would you please tell my dad that I want to see him? And Joab basically says, fine, but stop burning my stuff, okay? And so he goes. And Joab arranges um, a meeting between Absalom and David. And at this point, it's been five years since David and Absalom have even seen each other or talked to each other. And David forgives Absalom, which was probably difficult for him to do, but he does. And probably in David's mind, he's thinking that their relationship is restored. But in Absalom's mind, it's not. Absalom is hurt because David has been absent in all these areas of his life. 
And so Absalom is so angry and Absalom is so hurt that he decides to overthrow his dad. After all, I mean, think about it, what Absalom's thinking through. Like Amnon is dead, right? That Daniel guy, he's, he's dead. And so, and so because of the, they're both gone, Absalom is the next in line to become king anyway. And so what Absalom does, it's just so, so, so genius. It's so, so, so smart. He um, gets up early every morning and he starts hanging out by the city gate. And whenever someone had an issue to bring before the king, right, Absalom would intercept them and he would put his arm around them and he'd say, hey, why don't you, instead of going and bothering the king, why don't you bring me your problem? I'll, I'll take care of it. I, I think I can help. And so they would explain their problem and he'd be like, wow, you got a real, you know, you got a real problem there. Man, I really wish my dad had time to see you, but he just doesn't. He's so busy with all of his king stuff. But you know what? If I was king, right, I'd care about you. Does that sound like every politician you've ever heard? Right? <laughs> He says, if I was king, I would care about you. And he does this day after day after day for four years. In fact, after four years of doing this, it says, Absalom, he stole the hearts of the men of Israel. Everybody starts looking around. They're like, wow, man, this Absalom guy, he really cares about me. He really cares about us. What if he was king? What would that look like? And now, not only was Absalom very smart, the thing we got to also understand is that Absalom was also extremely handsome. In fact, he was known for his very, very, very long hair. He was known for this, right? He probably looked something like, all right, this, I would assume. Yeah. Yeah, we have our own... um, not as good looking, Absalom, right here, but uh, he was known for his very long hair, which is going to actually play a part, and it's going to be a negative at the end of his life. So Blaine, if you're in here, all right, just know that. Um, but the people love him. Man, he looks like a king. He acts like a king. He cares about everybody. I mean, the people love him, and Absalom, he knows this. And so Absalom, he eventually gets a bunch of guys to crown him as king of Israel. In 2 Samuel chapter 15, it says, Then an informer came to David, and he reported, he's like, David, you will not understand. you you, you got you to believe me on this. All right, the hearts of the men of Israel are with Absalom. Meaning, they're not with you anymore. Israel is aligning themselves behind Absalom. And apparently David, he is not shocked to hear this. I'm sure he has heard rumors over the past four years of exactly what Absalom has been doing. And, and, uh, and David said to all of his servants with him in Jerusalem, he says, everybody needs to get up and we have to flee. We need to escape or we will not escape from Absalom. Meaning he's coming. And so he tells him, he says, leave quickly or he will overtake us quickly and he will heap disaster on us and he will strike the city with the edge of the sword. See, what David knew, all right, is that if Absalom tried or that if David tried to defend the city from Absalom, who's got this big army in the report that he hears that's coming, he's coming for Jerusalem. And if Absalom happens to conquer Jerusalem, which would probably happen after months of a siege or after a battle, right, that Absalom would end up killing everybody in the city. Because he would assume that everybody is aligned behind his dad, King David. And so David abandons the throne to save the city. And think about it. Here in his life, he's, he's in his 60s. All right? David's a fugitive again. All right? He's no longer the cool kid who killed Goliath. Again, he's in his 60s. He's barefoot. And his own son is trying to kill him. And this is all because David chose not to lead his family. And David chose not to deal with with his sons. He chose to do nothing when he should have stepped up and done something. See, it's really a good lesson for us. 
I mean, as leaders, right? Like everybody in here, I'm assuming at some point or some area of our life that we are leaders, okay? Whether that's in the home, whether it's in the, our professional life, at work, whether that's at school, on the team, whatever it might be for you, um, all of us in here are probably at some point or at some level um, are leaders. And here's the deal that we need to remember, that we need to understand is that passivity, which is usually much easier. Have you noticed that? Like sitting around doing nothing is easier, right? Okay, all right. Sitting around and not doing the thing that we should be doing is always easier, but it leads to chaos. And we know this from experience. I mean, a lot of us, maybe we haven't put that into those words exactly, but we've all learned this lesson to some extent in our life. Like there's too many moms out there, and typically dads, by the way, who are at home and they're just passive, and they're kids. We're not parenting our kids the correct way, right? Or there's too many employers out there who don't address the issues that are going on within their workplace or within their department, like I was, and they're, because they're, avo- they're afraid or they're, basically they want to avoid conflict, and because of that, it just creates more conflict, Right? Passivity leads to chaos. There's too many Christians out there who wall themselves in to their little home to keep the evil outside world out. And that's the easy road. Like to be passive and to be not engaged, that is super, super easy. That's the easy road. See, for us as Christians, what we got to remember is that Jesus said himself, we are to be in the world. Some of us, we don't do that very well. Just not of the world. Some of us don't do that very well. See, some of us are the opposite, right? We embrace culture, and we just go along with whatever society tells us, and we're passive in that way. See, the only thing needed for evil to increase in our world is for the good to do nothing. And there's too many of us that choose to do nothing. I think there's no better example this week than voting, okay? Um, I hate politics. I hate talking about politics. Please don't up come up to me after church and talk to me about politics. But if you do want to talk about this issue, I have no problem um, going through this with you. Uh, but I, I, I understand in this room, we have people on both sides. We got Democrats. We got Republicans in here. We got people of all different um, thoughts and opinions. And it's okay to have your opinions. I think you should have an opinion. That's not being passive when we have opinions and we do something about it. All right. And so we have our different opinions on taxes and, and immigration and gun control and just things like that. Um, those things, by the way, are not moral issues. Okay, so you're free to have whatever opinion you want. I have my opinions on stuff. That's totally fine. But as Christians, which most of us in this room are, I would hope, uh, we should have our opinions on moral issues. All right, moral issues are important. Moral issues are very important. And abortion is the main one right now. It's unfortunate that's a political issue. I wish it wasn't. It shouldn't be. All right, it's a very moral thing. And the Bible is extremely, extremely clear is that God values life. He does. And I'm glad he does. All right, we should all be glad he does. See, we as Christians, no matter what our political preference is, whether we're Democrats, whether we're Republicans or Libertarians or whatever we might be, right, this issue we should be united on. And we should all be for women having the right over their own body. All right, 100% we should be. All right, but in the case of a pregnancy, in this one case, there is another life at play that we should also be responsible for, that we should also be looking after. And along with the woman, I think the child, and I think God, the Bible is clear, the child also has a right, specifically the most basic right that every single one of us in this room share, which is the right to live and to life. I don't think we have the right to take that. And so we as Christians, we should be fighting for that. Now, issue one is coming up. 
the vote coming up on, in two days, on Tuesday. Um, basically, what that will do, if that passes, is that will allow abortion to be enshrined into the Ohio Constitution, meaning there's nothing that anybody can do about it. There's nothing people can do about it after us, um, you know, in a future time. It, it will become a right, uh, not only for adults, but it will be a right for everybody, all right, for kids as well, meaning kids can go have an abortion without even telling their parents. Um, it, it also includes sex um, whatever, you know, sexual health and stuff like that is, which means sex changes now in our society and things like that will also become a right, not only for adults. Again, it will also be a right for children, all right, for kids. They don't have to tell their parents. They don't have to get permission from their parents because it is a right. See, because of that, because of it's so extreme, all right, we should all be voting no on issue one this week. And I'm not doing that just for the baby, it's also for the mom as well, right? Because, because there's hurt and there's pain and there's guilt and there's shame that also comes to the mom who I feel so badly for that also comes along with abortion. Now, I don't make that up. I'm not, com- I'm not just saying that. Obviously, I've never experienced abortion, right, myself. Um, but I'm saying that because you guys have told me that. You ladies who have experienced that, you ladies who have had abortions here that are part of our church family, all right, have told me about the hurt, the pain, the guilt, and the shame, things that no pro-abortion people ever want to talk about or ever recognize. And I just want to tell you this, that if that's you here this morning, there is forgiveness and there is freedom that is only found with Jesus because he paid for that. Is it wrong? Yes. But he paid for it. And we as your church family, are here for you, and we want you here, and we want all of you here. We don't want this, the shell of you. We want all of you, and you can bring your hurt. You can bring your pain. You can bring your guilt. You can bring all that. We'll take it because we're your family. We know what it's like to be messed up. If you want more information on that, that will be on the Info Center. Um, there's actually, we got a sheet there that has uh, the exact amendment that will break it all down for you, and you can um, look through that and just see, see exactly what this amendment will, will be. See, remaining passive in our life is not an option for a God follower. It's not, it's not good. See, we can look around at the world around us that's hurting all around us, and we could think it's so easy for us as Christians to think, hey, man, that's not my problem. Hey, it's not my life. Hey, they made that decision. This is, what, this is what they get. See, don't be like David here. Don't be the king of your life on your throne like David who's eating and drinking, kind of looking around for the next entertainment available for us while the world around us burns, all right, while the world around us falls into chaos. See, if God has empowered you to do good, you were meant to do it. And David here misses his chance. He misses it. And as he takes on the consequences for his choices, again, this is not punishment, this is consequences, right? the, native as- the negative aspects of his sin, something begins to change within David. Right? David starts to recognize something, and the thing that he recognizes is that God is in control. And that God cares. In fact, there's people, as David is marching out of the city with his entourage and his whole family and, and all, the other, all of his other sons and his, and his wives and, and just, you know, everybody and all of his soldiers and his most trusted men and the men who have stayed loyal to him. Right, there's guys out there that are cursing him, right, and throwing rocks at him. And David, I mean, one of his soldiers, actually one guy, he's throwing rocks at him and he's cursing David. And, and one of his soldiers is like, I'm not listening to this anymore. Hey, David, I'll be right back. I'm about to go cut this guy's head off. And he starts going, David's like, whoa, no, 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 no. 
not today. He shows mercy to this guy. It's like it starts working on him on the inside out. He becomes humble. He becomes repentant. And he's not making excuses. And eventually, Absalom, he gathers this huge army. And he goes after David. And David, I mean, can you imagine? Put yourself in David's shoes for just a moment. Can you imagine as David realizes that he's going to have to face his son in battle? And he gives his commanders this command. As he's getting everybody ready. He's like, hey. We're going to have to fight him, but here's the deal. Treat the young man Absalom gently for my sake, meaning don't hurt him. All right, you bring him to me alive. And all the people heard the king's orders. He made sure everybody knows, do not hurt Absalom. All right, don't hurt him. Bring him to me alive. And they go off to battle, and 20,000 men die that day in battle. And David's men end up defeating Absalom's army. Now, as Absalom is riding away, he's, he's on a mule, all right, as he's riding away, all right, his long hair right, happens to get tangled in the branches of this huge oak tree, and the mule keeps on going. So that leaves Absalom hanging there all right, by his hair, which is super embarrassing, okay? especially when you're supposed to be a warrior. So he's hanging there by his long hair. And Joab, David's general, he finds out exactly where Absalom is, and he goes to the tree. And the men around him, because um, David's men have surrounded him, they're like, dude, you know, probably making fun of him and stuff. Um, and the men around him, they start, they tell Joab, they're like, whoa, 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 Joab, don't kill him. Right, you heard what the king said. Remember what David said? David said, we're not to hurt Absalom. And Joab doesn't listen, and he takes three spears, and he thrusts them into Absalom's chest. And then ten guys around him, they start thrusting their spears into Absalom's body, and he gets, like, super dead, okay? He's, like, deader than dead at this point. And he dies. And when Absalom dies, his army, everybody that rallied around him, they end up going, they just go home. And when David hears this, the realization of what has happened just crushes him, as you can't imagine as a parent. He says, the king was deeply moved, and he went up to the chamber above the city gate, and he cried. He couldn't stop crying. In fact, this is what he was saying. He said, as he walked, he said, my son, Absalom, my son, my son, Absalom, if only I had died instead of you, Absalom, my son, my son. He just, he's just rambling. He cannot put this down. He doesn't know what to do. This is worse. This is his worst nightmare in his entire life, and it's happening. And he's shaken. And he returns to Jerusalem, and it's an extremely hollow victory because David, I mean, because it came at such a high cost, and David is king once again. But this time, there is no celebration. There is no party. And David is just overtaken by sadness. Just a few years later, David, uh, he turns 70 years old, all right? And again, back then, uh, this, I mean, he is, he is really, really, really old in ancient times. And, and he is sick, and he is bedridden. And, uh, and we find out that uh, later on that his fourth son, remember him, all right, on the list? Dead, dead, dead. His fourth son, Adonijah, he makes a bid to take the throne. Now, in between this time, God has told, uh, God has told David that his son Solomon, who's several sons even below uh, Adonijah, that his son Solomon would be the next king of Israel. And Adonijah, it sounds like he knows that because he's not waiting for his dad to die. He's like, I'm going to take it. I'm going to take my kingship now. I'm the next oldest one. I should be taking the throne. But David has learned his lesson on being passive. 
right? Finally. And instead of being indifferent, instead of sitting back and doing nothing, David springs into action. Even though he's sick, even though he's dying in his bed, and he works quickly to crown his son Solomon as the next king. And Solomon, as you may or may not know, he was the one that was going to take the kingdom of Israel to their best days that they've ever had, to the height of the empire. And soon after Solomon is crowned king, David dies. And time went by. And 3,000 years later, here we are, still learning from this man's successes and still learning from this man's failures. See, by looking at this man's life, David, hopefully we can be saved from some of the tragedy that David was faced with that stemmed from his choice to be passive. Right? Hopefully we can not walk in David's ways in this, in these instances, right, and, uh, and choose not to be, and choose to be, uh, and choose not to be passive, unlike David. See, the thing we got to remember is that passivity always leads to chaos. Passivity is always easier, right? It's always the most comfortable path for us to take, but it always leads to problems. As I'm sure many of us in this room have understood, I'm sure many of us in this room have learned that lesson a time or two within our lives. And maybe, again, we haven't put that into words. But if you think through some of those circumstances within your own lives, you know it to be true. David was reminded over and over and over again that it messes things up. And as God followers, we're not to sit back and allow, allow evil, let's say, to take place. If there's something we can do about it, as if we can lead, we are meant to lead well. In fact, here on our staff, we have this, we have this phrase that, uh, that you should adopt, all right? It's good. Um, but we say as pastors, what we need to do is we need, always need to love first, lead second, always do both. Love first, lead second, always do both. Meaning choose not to be passive. We got to take care of business while showing the love that we're required, while showing the love that God calls us to show as Christians, while still taking action and doing the right thing. Let's pray. God, we thank you uh, for David's life and telling us about David's life. God, there's so much stuff for us to learn, both good, time, good things and bad things. There's so many areas of David's life that he did so, so, so well that we want to be just like, that we want to emulate and, and replicate within our own life. But then, God, there's some other areas of his life that, man, are so, so bad. He just made some stupid, just some dumb decisions that we all make in our own lives so we can identify with him. God, we ask that we would not do that. We ask that you would help us to make wise decisions. Help us not to sit back and remain passive in our life. God, help us to do life as you've called us to. Lord, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we will see you guys back here next week. Next week, we're starting a brand new series, and it's Veterans Day, and so we're pumped. We'll see you guys back here at church.